Welcome to the Smeichel Speaks podcast channel. I'm Joanne Smeichel, and I'm delighted that you tuned in for relevant leadership learning that will help you continue to soar. Enjoy this episode. This year, I am going to help us focus on something different that matters to each and every person on the planet, and that is brain health. We talk a lot about heart health, but I want to talk about brain health because it's something that we may overlook and may not understand. So it is my honor and my privilege to spend time with Dr. David Dodick. He's a leader in the world of brain health. And when I say a leader in the world of brain health, I also mean a leader in the world. Uh, He's established a notable international reputation. And this year he's gonna help us spend time on the brain. This new series is Brain Matters. And there is nobody better to launch it with me than Dr. Dodick. Welcome, Dr. Dodick. Thank you, Joanne. It's such a pleasure to be with you, and I don't deserve that uh, introduction, but uh, I'll take it for now. (laughs) Before we get to matters of the brain, I'm going to tell them a little bit more about you so that they know why you enjoy, why you uh, are worthy of that introduction. You are an emeritus professor of neurology, a Mayo Clinic distinguished investigator uh, and distinguished educator. You founded and directed the headache and concussion programs at Mayo Clinic. You're an affiliate professor at the University of Copenhagen, guest professor at the Norwegian University of Science and Technology, and an adjunct professor at Thomas Jefferson University. So you've also authored, oh, more than 900 peer-reviewed manuscripts and abstracts and authored or edited 13 books. So now that's a really brief overview of what you've done. Will you tell us a little bit more about what you're currently doing? Sure, Joanne. Thank you. I'm still involved in research that's focused on migraine as well as concussion, otherwise known as mild traumatic brain injury. And this research involves unraveling the mechanisms that underlie migraine and other headache disorders, in fact, as well as identifying new targets for drug development. I'm still involved and still leading clinical trials that are evaluating novel treatments and approaches to migraine and concussion. And um, I'm involved in research that's trying to identify markers, biological markers, which can help identify individuals who have sustained repeated head impacts or concussions who may be at risk for long-term complications. So I'm still very much involved in research in both of the areas to which I've dedicated my career. Um, I'm doing a lot of other things as well. I'm co-chair of World Brain Day. It's a global initiative of the World Federation of Neurology, which is focused on raising awareness around brain health. And indeed, as you've alluded to, the prevention of neurological diseases by optimizing the health of the brain over the lifespan. I'm also chair of the American Brain Foundation, have been for the past four years, and it's a a position which I, I very much enjoy. And the American Brain Foundation seeks to fund research, actually. It exists to fund research across the entire spectrum of brain diseases. So that's a little bit of what I'm up to now. I met you through uh, American Brain Foundation, and I was just struck by your passion for finding cures for brain diseases. And I 
frankly, I never really thought most brain diseases could be cured. Um, and I think that's something probably lots of people think. Will you tell me, tell us what made you devote so much of your life's energy to brain matters? You know, when I was a medical student, I became inspired by an individual, as we often are, who ultimately became a lifelong mentor and close friend. But I became inspired to study the brain because I found it just absolutely fascinating. I found everything fascinating in medical school, uh, but the brain was particularly interesting to me. And it appeared to be kind of the final frontier. There was so much that we didn't know, so much that we needed to know. So I began to focus on neurology and brain health in medical school, decided to do a residency, went to the Mayo Clinic, uh, which was world-renowned uh, in general, but also in particular in neurology, did a residency, did fellowship uh, back in Canada, and then came back to the Mayo Clinic where I spent the next um, 25 years uh, on the faculty as a professor at the Mayo Clinic and spent my entire career involved in research and in taking care of patients with a variety of different brain disorders. But what I saw happen over the course of 32, 33 years was that we went from a specialty that was mainly a diagnostic one where we would be able to make a diagnosis of a neurological disorder but not be able to do very much about it, to one 32 years later, where I've seen just an explosion of new therapeutics that have become available to treat many of the patients with neurological disorders. Uh, in fact, some maybe even cure. So I've seen just an incredible explosion of knowledge that came through research that led to treatment advances that allowed me as a physician, as a neurologist, to change the lives of people with neurological disorders. So there was nothing more gratifying to me than to study an area for which little was known, so much needed to be known, and to watch over the period of three decades, the lives of people be changed through advances in research. That's fascinating, especially since you are talking about going from a time where you could diagnose it, but do nothing else about it, to now being poised to cure. That, that is awesome. Now, some people who are listening might still be thinking, what does brain health have to do with me? I've never had a concussion. I don't have Alzheimer's. I don't have dementia. Because there's this common misconception that dementia and Alzheimer's are the brain diseases we should think about. But what difference does brain health matter to the leaders? My, my podcast listeners are mainly leaders in business, industry, government. So what difference does it make to these folks? Well, Joanne, without a properly and optimally functioning brain, you and I would not be able to do this podcast today. Mm -hmm. um, we would not be able to function in our day-to-day -day lives. The very thing that allows us to enjoy friends, family, to emote, to love, um, to work and be productive members of society is our brain. It governs everything that we do. So there's hardly anything more important than the health of your brain. Now, as with the rest of our body, our brain ages over time. 
But we've often treated and even joked about the aging of the brain. You know, so the senior moments, for example, it's almost become a meme where we treat cognitive aging and a deteriorating health of the brain as almost an inevitable consequence of aging itself. And I think we'll look back on that in the not too distant future as a massive failure in our understanding of what we could do to prevent the aging of the brain. So brain health is critical for every single one of us. And we now know that there's the ability to control the aging of the brain and to optimize our cognitive health is completely within our control. Um, so much has been learned over the past three decades. And in fact, the fact we're talking about brain health, the fact that the World Federation of Neurology has a brain health initiative and every professional neurological society in the world has this new brain health initiative. And as you talked about at the beginning of this segment, we'll be talking about brain health over the next half century in the same way we've talked about heart health and preventive cardiology over the last half century. So there's nothing more important from my perspective. Um, and there's now an ability and a knowledge base to be able to control the health of our brains and optimize the health of our brains over time. So there's nothing more exciting from my perspective, and it's what I plan to spend the rest of my career on, actually. Well, now, what you just said raises more questions for me. How does a person preserve the brain and ensure brain health? What do you suggest? It comes down to environment, lifestyle, and identifying people who are at risk. So probably the most effective treatment or the most effective way to optimize the health of your brain is through exercise. Hmm. Now we hear, you know, we all know about the importance of exercise, but the importance of exercise when it comes to optimizing brain health cannot be underestimated. It actually can't, it cannot be overestimated. Um, so exercise is crucial and everyone, everybody should be scheduling an appointment in their diary on a daily basis, just like you would schedule this podcast or any other appointment that you have to exercise. Um, nutrition is obviously very important. And there are certain dietary regimens out there that have been shown to potentially optimize the health of the brain and delay cognitive aging and maybe even delay the onset of dementia. So lifestyle mod modifications and adaptations are crucial. Sleep, crucially important for the health of the brain. So getting the requisite amount of sleep each night cannot be overestimated, the importance of that. So there are certain, and stress management, stress is not good for the brain. There's a, stress can have a profoundly negative impact on the structure and the electrical and the chemical functional aspects of the brain. So um, stress management and is, is very important. And then sometimes supplementation can be important for the health of the brain. There are some supplements, for example, that have been shown in some studies to actually optimize cognitive performance and optimize cognitive health. Cognitive adaptive training or cognitive exercises is as important for the brain as physical exercise is to the body. So all of these things are very important. And I mentioned something earlier about identifying people at risk. 
mm-hmm. Parkinson's disease, Alzheimer's disease begins in the brain years to decades before the onset of symptoms. So identifying those people who are at risk, you know, Joanne, there are 6 million people in the United States right now with Alzheimer's disease. But do you know that there are four, between 40 and 50 million in the pre-symptom stage of Alzheimer's disease? And so as our population ages, um, there are many people who are going about their daily lives right now who are at risk. So identifying them and implementing the kind of lifestyle changes that I just talked about, as well as research now, as we'll get to talk about in a moment, is sort of focusing on this pre-symptomatic or pre-clinical stage of the disease and implementing interventions, drug, for example, drug interventions, to try to impede the progression, delay the onset, or maybe even prevent the onset of the disease. So optimizing cognitive and brain health um, will have a significant effect on diminishing and reducing the incidence and the prevalence of things like Alzheimer's disease. I mean, we believe now that about 40 to 50% of dementia, for example, is preventable. Wow. Without any drugs. Now you can imagine we've seen two drugs that have been approved for the, by the FDA for the treatment of Alzheimer's disease now. Now, while there may be some controversy and a lot of um, arguments around how effective they are, what it does is it signifies the fact that we know more about the biology of these diseases and treatments are becoming available. So if I, for example, am on a fast track to dementia or Alzheimer's disease, I want to know about it because it's definitely going to modify the way I live my life. And I want to take advantage of treatment opportunities that become available to prevent or to delay the onset of that disease. That's fascinating. You mentioned something just a, a, a little bit ago about cognitive exercise. Is that what you mm. said? What yeah. is that? What is what is that? So there are some tools out there right now that have quite a bit of evidence to support their use um, as a cognitive exercise that can improve cognitive processing speed, the ability for us to process information, the bit, our working memory, our long-term memory, our visual memory, various aspects that we of our brain function that we depend on every day, cognitive exercises. And so I'll give you an example, and I have no ties to this company or to this product, but Brain HQ, for example, is what your listeners may be interested, is one such cognitive exercise program that's online, can sign up for it, and it takes you through various stages of brain games, if you will, but mm-hmm. brain games that are specifically designed and tailored to improve various aspects of your cognitive health and brain function, from memory to processing speed to executive function to judgment to decision-making and those sorts of cognitive aspects that are so important for us in our day-to-day life. So cognitive exercises... Um, and you know the evidence would suggest that people who do these cognitive exercises can see improvement in each of these cognitive domains. Oh, that's fascinating. I never heard of cognitive exercises until you said that. Yeah. You mentioned something else, and I don't know if you want to go deeper on it or not. You mentioned vitamins and supplements. Are there a few that you think are important? And I know that you're not prescribing them to listeners. You're just giving them something to think about and maybe talk to their physician about. But are there a few that you think are important? 
I think there's a couple that I think are important because um, they're important for cognitive health and brain health. And many Americans are deficient in them. So low-hanging fruit, if you will, if I could use that phrase, vitamin D is one of them. So many Americans are deficient in vitamin D. And so vitamin D supplementation for those who are deficient or for those who are below the optimal target for vitamin D is a simple and maybe effective measure to improve cognitive health. Omega-3. So everyone knows about omega-3s and the importance of omega-3s. Most people don't get enough omega-3s in their diet. And so knowing what your omega-3 index is, or your there's a test called the omega-quant, which tells you how much omega-3s you have, what your omega-3 status is. If that's below a certain threshold, then omega-3 supplementation can be helpful for brain health as well as heart health. You know, 97, there's a couple of different omega-3s that we measure, including what's called DHA and EPA. And DHA represents about 95 to 98% of the fat that's in the brain. So it's very important for the integrity of the blood vessels that bring blood to the brain, as well as for the brain cells themselves. So those are two supplements that, you know, could be important, are important for brain health that many Americans may be deficient in. Um, there's a couple of others that, um, may be helpful in certain individuals. So there's something called magnesium three and eight, uh, or mag team, uh, which has been shown in some studies to potentially support brain health. There is a type of curcumin called theracumin, um, which may be helpful for brain health. So there are supplements out there, which may be important for some individuals to be thinking about when it comes to optimizing their cognitive health. But vitamin D, I think, and omega-3, if your listeners take anything away from this, they should have their vitamin D measured, they should have their omega-3s measured, um, and they should optimize um, the levels of those in, in their body. Thank you. I want to talk a little bit about research because we would not have ever come to the knowledge of the importance of D or omega-3 or any of those other things, we would not have come to the knowledge about the need for cognitive exercise were it not for research. So what's going on now? What research is interesting to you? What research is fascinating? What research needs more support? Well, there's a, there's a whole whole world of research going on all over the world in neurological diseases and in brain health. Some exciting areas are gene therapy. So editing or replacing a defective gene um, that ultimately will lead to a devastating neurological disease. Examples are spinal muscular atrophy or Huntington's disease is a very exciting area of um, research. There's something called ASOs or antisense oligonucleotides, which are small pieces of DNA or RNA that can alter the expression of a disease. So they alter the processing. They can either increase or decrease certain proteins that there may be too much of or too little of. And so that's a ex very exciting area of research right now. Stem cell therapy is a way for us to potentially regenerate or protect 
um, dying brain cells. So stem cell therapy is an exciting area of research. Uh, Brain-computer interface research. So trans technologies that translate brain signals into action, whether it's spoken words or whether it's motor actions, mm-hmm. um, uh, is an exciting area. Immune therapies in, in diseases like multiple sclerosis, there's been an absolute explosion of new immune therapies that change the course of autoimmune diseases of the nervous system like multiple sclerosis and there are others as well um deep brain stimulation is an area of exciting area of research and even stimulating the brain and modulating the brain um, through technologies that aren't invasive and don't require access to the brain itself but you can do it from outside like transcranial magnetic stimulation is an exciting area of research. And then I think artificial intelligence, which we all have heard a lot about over the last year with ChatGPT and something called machine learning, which is a type of artificial intelligence, is really helping to assist in diagnosis and treatment to identify the optimal treatments for an individual patient, so-called precision medicine. Because the medicine that you, have, you can have one medicine and it may have a completely different effect in you than it does in me. So identifying with precision, using artificial intelligence, the kind of medicine that you should be on versus me for the same disease um, can, that can affect you know, our, our outcomes is another important area of research. So there's, those are just some, and you know I'm missing mm-hmm. a lot, but those are just some pretty exciting areas of research right now. At the beginning of our time together, you talked about your service to the American Brain Foundation. Is this the kind of research that they fund? Is this what they do? Yes, absolutely. So, you know, Joanne, over the past eight years, the American Brain Foundation has funded to the tune of about $55 million, more than 300 young researchers, because these young researchers um, are the discoverers of treatment advances and cures of the future. So we have we have um, invested heavily in young researchers, and it's paid off because almost ninety percent of those young researchers have gone on to have prolific and productive research careers with funding from the National Institutes of Health and the Department of Defense and other other federal funders of research. Um, and you know, I was I was one of those early recipients of uh, of one of those career grants from the American Brain Foundation and the American Academy of Neurology more than 30 years ago. And it's what catapulted my career. So, um, yeah, we were, and what we do at the American Brain Foundation, there are associations and societies and nonprofits that fund research in a particular disease area, like Parkinson's disease or Alzheimer's disease or stroke or epilepsy. But the American Brain Foundation takes a different approach. We fund research across the entire spectrum of brain diseases. And we have a philosophy that if we cure one, we will cure many. And what we mean by that is that there are mechanisms that are shared across neurological diseases. And one of the ones we're focusing on right now is inflammation. So inflammation in the brain may be a critical underlying mechanism that drives certain diseases like Alzheimer's disease or Parkinson's disease or traumatic brain injury or migraine and many others. So you can see that one mechanism 
is shared and drives the development of many neurological diseases. And so the cure one, cure many, if we understood in, in detail what, what, infl what inflammatory mechanism is driving a single disease and we developed a treatment or a cure for that, then it would have a ripple effect on other diseases that share similar inflammatory mechanisms. So that is why we, we kind of cover or blanket all neurological diseases with this philosophy of cure one, cure many, because advances in one area of research will have a, can have a profound ripple effect on other areas of research. It's also why we're interested in funding collaborative research. Historically, we tend to work in silos. We tend to have, a, we tend to be very focused on our area, but that may not be the best way forward because someone working in what seemingly are disparate areas of research, either in the brain or even outside the brain, uh, if we shared knowledge and shared skill sets um, and shared research tools, then we may be able to accelerate the pace uh, of finding cures and getting to treatment advances. So I think collaborative research, teamwork, it, you know, science and research is, is a team sport. And I think if we're working together um, collaboratively in areas that are complementary, I think we'll get to cures much, much faster. So how can my listeners learn more about this work that the American Brain Foundation is doing and, and what can they do to support the work? Because one in every three individuals across planet Earth will be personally impacted by a neurological disease, one in three, that means that practically nobody escapes the impact of a neurological disease. Because if you personally are not one of those three, um, you will know a friend or you will have a family member impacted by a neurological disorder. And I, I wonder how many of your listeners today have actually been impacted personally with a neurological dis disorder or disease or know someone in their family or have a close friend who's been impacted. I'll bet you it's at least 90% of your listeners. Mm -hmm. So therefore, the only way forward is through research. The only reason, Joanne, that 34 years ago, when I began to work in the neurological field, the only reason 34 years later, as I alluded to earlier, that we are so much further ahead and are able to treat many of these neurological disorders now is through research. The only way you can get a vaccine or the only way you can treat high cholesterol or the only way you can treat diabetes with the treatment advances we've seen there is through research. So I think it's important for everyone to be invested at some level in supporting research. To, to, to know what the American Brain Foundation is doing, www.americanbrainfoundation.org, we strive to be the most important philanthropy for brain disease research in the United States and indeed the world. We don't invest nearly as much in neurological disease research as we do in other areas of research. Not that other areas of research are not important, they're all important but we need to really pick up the pace um, and expand 
the population that's supporting research in, in neurological diseases because it's the number one cause of disability in the world and it's the number two cause of death and it affects almost everybody on planet Earth. So I can think of nothing more important to support than brain disease research. And you can do that through the American Brain Foundation. You can do it through other professional associations that are focused on a specific disease. Or you can do it through foundations that are dedicated to a particular area of research that ultimately will have a profound impact on the health of the brain. I'll give you an example. The American Heart Association, for example, is funding um, research in brain diseases. Why? Because heart disease and other diseases like obesity, um, high cholesterol, diabetes, hypertension have a profound effect on the brain. In fact, sometimes Alzheimer's disease is referred to as type 3 diabetes. Hyperglycemia or elevated glucose and insulin resistance can have a very deleterious effect on the brain. So one way to optimize the health of the brain, as I talked about earlier, is through lifestyle modifications, um, is through knowing your numbers like vitamin D and omega-3 and others and optimizing those parameters, but also recognizing that if you're at risk for or developing things like hypertension, diabetes, high cholesterol, obesity, those are eminently treatable conditions and they're eminently preventable conditions. So optimizing those can have a profound effect on the health of the brain over time. 48% of Americans, Joanne, have hypertension and only about 20% or so actually know it and are having it properly managed. Oh. There's low hanging fruit. Hypertension mm -hmm. is the number one cause of stroke. It's mm -hmm. a major cause of cardiovascular disease and myocardial infarction. And there are plenty of medicines and lifestyle modifications that one can implement to effectively manage hypertension. It's one of the biggest killers uh, from a public health standpoint around the world. And yet, as a simple thing like measuring blood pressure and managing it is not done in the majority of people who have it. Mm -hmm. And so that, that's what I mean. I mean, hypertension unrecognized and undiagnosed and untreated can have a devastating effect on the health of the brain over time. The same thing goes for obesity. The same thing goes for um, diabetes, even pre-diabetes. The same thing goes for high cholesterol. So biologically optimizing one's metabolic and cardiac mm -hmm. can have a profound effect on the brain. So supporting disease areas that are doing research in those, in those areas can also be indirectly supporting brain health as well. Thank you for that. Dr. Dodick, this is a really important topic and I wanna go deeper into it. Are you open to returning to talk more about brain matters? Of course, Joanne, for you, anytime, anywhere. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much for being my guest. I appreciate all of the information that you've shared, all of the insights that you shared. And most important, I appreciate the fact that you have made this practical for people, that we understand that there are things that we can do to preserve and protect our brains. So thank you for that. My pleasure, Joanne. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this podcast. I hope you got tools that you'll actually use and share. Subscribe if you haven't already. I add new and relevant leadership learning all of the time. 
If you haven't visited the Smichael Speaks YouTube channel, check it out. There's all sorts of new content. All of this is virtual leadership learning that will help you soar.